Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you're joining us this morning. Take some time out to pursue God together. Uh, we are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, paper on a tablet or an iPhone or an Android or something, you can go to Matthew 22. If you don't, don't worry. You're going to be able to keep up with us um, just fine. But while you're, some of you are getting there, I got a couple quick announcements for you. Uh, the first one is for the last probably six weeks you have been hearing us have this conversation about this thing we're calling the Zero Campaign. Now, if you're brand new here, we're glad you're here. You may not have heard this yet, but um, over the years, the last couple decades, there have been seasons where our facility costs have ranged anywhere from 35 to 55 percent of our budget, which is a ton right? And um, God really opened some doors and some really awesome things are going on to where we are getting an opportunity to be able to get our facility costs to zero dollars. Not just the mortgage, but utilities, maintenance, upkeep, everything to zero dollars in six to nine years. Now, for that to happen, we have to raise $60,000, so um, for November and December, we started this thing we're calling uh, a one fund. It's a one fund campaign we're calling Zero. And our objective, because of a bunch of IRS regulations and those types of things, is to raise all of the expenses for November and December plus $30,000. Now, we only have to raise $30,000 because a family in California that doesn't go here, has never gone here, has never had family that went here, knows about this church and wanted to really put some fuel to what we're doing. And so they're gonna, they're gonna pay for half it. They're gonna dollar for dollar match up to $30,000, which is amazing, right? But to do that, we have to raise all of our November and December expenses before the end of the year, plus... $30,000. So he, here's the awesome good thing, okay? There, there are eight Sundays um, from November 1st until December 31st. In five Sundays, this last weekend, we surpassed our November and De December expenses, which is awesome. So, like, we are on a pace to, to crush this which is awesome and so grateful because so many of you have already choose, chosen to lean into this and to be extravagantly generous. Um, I'm 100% confident that we're gonna hit this goal, right? Um, but it does mean that we now have that $30,000 we have to raise over the next um, about three weeks. And so if you haven't yet uh, played a role, I I'd encourage you to be prayerful about if God's um, positioning you, giving the opportunity to be a part of us having to raise this $120,000 for a zero fund campaign. So awesome. Like we are on a great clip and a great pace because of your generosity. And I'm super confident that we're going to hit it because of your generosity. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's the goal. We got about $28,000 we have to raise before the end of the year, December 31st. I could share with you about a bunch of regulations about why that matters, but you don't care. That's what matters. Okay. Um, also, Rooted. Rooted. Rooted just ended uh, just last Sunday. You're going to see some testimonies about that in a little bit. It's awesome. For us, Rooted, here's what you need to know. This is all you really need to know. Rooted is the answer. For us, if you want to know about how do you grow in your faith, about how do you get connected, how do you find a place to serve, how do you find community, how do you like navigate this whole Jesus stuff, Rooted is the answer. And, and we've got another group 
that's going to start in January. And if you have not participated in Rooted, we would love for you to join us. And the easiest way to figure that out is to text the word Monmouth to 97,000 um, to get information and get yourself signed up for Rooted, and you'll be glad that you did. Okay, here we go. Matthew 22, okay? With the time that we have, we're going to do what we do every single week. We're going to read. We're going to talk about some context, and then we're going to ask the question, what does this mean and why does this matter for us? Okay, so, so first, let's read. Here we go. You ready? Verse 23 is where we're at. It says this. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, that's a little important detail Matthew wants us to remember, came to Jesus and questioned him. Okay, so let's pause for a second to set a little context. Um, we are in the midst of a single day of continuous questioning of Jesus. Because you see, what has happened in Jesus' life is he's really gained some momentum. He's gained a following. He, he's come riding in on a horse, into, uh, on a donkey into Jerusalem, declaring his kingship as a king, coming back to his capital city. And, and the people are flocking to him, and there's energy and excitement. And so every single group that has any amount of power in the city gets really nervous. And so what's happening is each individual group is trying to question Jesus. What they're trying to do is they're trying to throw Jesus like a little political grenade, right? Or throw him a little religious grenade and see if he can handle it. They're hoping that he messes up and they can discredit him and he can go away and they can make a fool of him in front of all the people. And, and so actually next week, we're going to hit the last question that he, that he has asked and then he's going to ask them a question that they can't answer, right? But today, the Sadducees are who's up and they're going to ask him this question, okay? So it says this, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up his children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also, the second and the third, down to the seventh, and this was the beginning of a Dateline special. Verse 27, <laughs> last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, remember what Matthew said at the very beginning? These are people who don't believe in the resurrection. This is the grenade, right? They're asking him, if there is a resurrection, how does this work? They're trying to make a fool of him. So he says this, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. It's a grenade question. It's a religiously weighted question. But, but here's the reality. For a lot of us, it's not a real pressing question. Um, because the tradition that he's talking about, the expectation, the norm in their culture uh, seems so forward, and, and to be honest, feels really kind of gross, doesn't it? This, this is what would happen. In Jewish law, if a man married a woman and they didn't have a son, they could have children, but if they didn't have a son and then that man died, which was very common, they had an average life expectancy of somewhere between 29 and 32, depending upon uh, their occupation, 29 and 32 years old, they, they didn't have a son, this woman would be left alone. And, and in our society, a woman who's widowed and maybe has children, there's a lot of social safety nets for her. 
There's a lot of things built around. But in, in their day, in Jesus's day, and even before Jesus' day, in most cultures, this woman who's now widowed would become very hard to remarry. She couldn't own land. She couldn't have a job. So she becomes a homeless widow. And it may even just be, it may not just be this widow because the father may have had children with her, but they may have been all girls. And so there may be a woman with a bunch of daughters and now she has no husband. It's hard for her to get remarried. She has no way of making income. And in most cultures, these people became the exploited people of their culture. They became prostitutes. They became temple prostitutes. They became priestesses. They became homeless. They became slaves. They were an exploited people. But God, and it seems so weird to us and so uncomfortable, but God, knowing that this would happen for his people, he set up a uh, sort of a social safety net. He set up a way to provide for those who are most vulnerable and most exploitable. And so, so what he would do is, is um, that if the husband died and he was gone, then the oldest brother would be responsible for taking in the wife and any daughters that may be there and making sure that she has a son. Because, um, oh, oh, we read this scripture. You probably read it before. It'll say something, or maybe you have it like written on something. And it'll say something like, um, uh, children are an inheritance from God. Seen anything like that? Right? Because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, boys were their retirement fund, right? Um, boys were their 401k. I, I don't, even if you don't have kids, you probably know this. Kids are expensive. Did you know that? And, and because of like some super liberal laws against child labor, <laughs> you get no return on having children. They just cost you money. And every single time you feed them, you're like shoving dollar bills down their throat that you're never going to get back. <laughs> Kidding, I love my kids. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, they were literally paying into their retirement fund every time they had it. You, you wonder why kids who were so incredibly expensive, why they had so many kids. It's because they were guaranteed. When they got old enough that they could not work in a society, in ancient Near Eastern culture, their retirement fund was their children because beginning with the oldest son and then working their way down, they were responsible for bringing in the parents, providing for them, and taking care of them. But when there are no sons, there is no recourse for that for a woman or for her children. And so God built this system, this plan for his people that if a woman was widowed and vulnerable and, and at risk of being exploited, incredibly exploited, that God would provide for her a son through the dead husband's brother. And here's the interesting thing. Legally, the, um, the, the, the next brother who's alive and has children with her, those children would not be his children. According to genealogy and legal practices of Jewish people, they, he would actually, they would actually be the children of the dead, son, of the dead brother. They, they would carry on his family name. They would carry on. He, they would be in the line of that dead brother as a way of preserving and protecting and in God's graciousness, providing for the most vulnerable people. But it creates a lot of questions. 
It's a good question. It's a good question to ask. Again, it's not really pressed, but maybe it is for us. Just think about this, right? Maybe it's not because of this, what seems so foreign and weird practice of marrying your sister-in-law all the way down the line, but, but what, about, what about people who are married more than once? Uh, my wife's grandpa, he was married when he was in his early 20s, and I think a year and a half or two years in, his wife died in a car accident. A couple years later, he got married again and had children with her and grandchildren and all the way down the line. Well, when they get to heaven, who's he married to? His first wife or his second wife? I mean, it should be a bit of a pressing question for us because he, here's the reality of the world that I live in. This is at least my question, right? I'm going to spend the vast majority of my life, as long as I live long enough, Decades and decades and decades devoted to loving one woman uniquely. When we get to heaven, we're just going to wave at each other from across the crowd. Hey! How are you? I mean, she, her mansion is going to be really far away from me because she's a better Christian than me. So she's going to be a lot closer to Jesus and I'm going to be a lot further out. And we're going to be at breakfast sometime. Hey, hi! So you put some roadies in the front yard, right? Like, what's it going to be like in heaven for married folk? Well, what about for children? Like, are my kids, when I'm in heaven, right, are my kids, are they going to call me dad? If not, it's going to be real weird for a real long time. <laughs> hey, Sean. Excuse me? Right? What's going to... What's going to be like? There's a lot of good questions. And, and Jesus' answer doesn't really help us answer any of those questions. Look again at what he says. Look at, look at the answer Jesus gives. He says this. Verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, you may think that Jesus is just being redundant to make a point when he says marry or given in marriage, but it's, it's actually, there's two different phrases because it's such a distinct, different experience for a man to get married than for a woman to get married. And so um, men would marry a wife and a, wife, a woman would be given in marriage. So he's referring to both men will not take wives and wives will not be given, right? It's, it's, it's both sides of the equation. And in fact, this still kind of carries in our culture. If you've been to a wedding, right? Um, bride comes walking down the aisle with her dad or someone in that place and the groom stands up here and, and um, uh, the, the pastor or officiant or whoever's up here stands up here and, and, and they say, what, what, who gives this woman to this man, right? Same kind of idea. I, I, I was doing a wedding some time ago and um, uh, the, the dad of the bride didn't speak any English, Right? And I, just for context, I don't speak any Spanish. I've convinced my kids otherwise because I can talk to, I can speak to, in Spanish to 10. So they're pretty convinced that I'm fluent in Spanish, <laughs> right? Um, but we were doing the rehearsal and the dad wasn't there. And, and so the bride says to me, she says, hey, um, could, could you do it in Spanish? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do it in Spanish. And if you'll just record it. So I had to record it. I'm like, don't write it down because I have no clue what you're saying. But if you record it, I will repeat the noises that you make. And, and thereby, anyone who speaks Spanish will hear a very white gringo dude butcher Spanish. 
okay? So I practice, my wife will tell you, I practice over and over and over again. And then I tried practicing pace because like the worst thing is when you're speaking something in another language and you just become very monotone because you don't know how to right, move with the right statement. And so I practiced and I practiced, I practiced, I practiced. I'm super nervous. I get up there, nervous the whole thing. And I, dad wasn't there. So I, I told him, I said, you need to make sure that dad knows that this is going to happen and what he says. And that's all I said. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So we get there and the wedding's happening and your bride comes walking down and dad comes walking down and, and, and dad knows I don't speak any English because we've talked through cousins before the wedding. I'll talk to the cousin, right? Translate through the cousin. And I know he doesn't speak any English. So I'm doing this whole thing in English. He comes up to the front and I say, I don't remember what the phrase is, but I said it in Spanish and I think he was incredibly shocked and nobody had told him. So I say in Spanish, who gives this woman to this man? And he goes... Carlos? <laughs> you got it right. We can go on with the wedding. Um, but but we, we still kind of have this right. So that's what Jesus is talking about. That's why he says marry or given in marriage. But then he says this, this phrase that we're going to be like angels. I got questions. Like touched by an angel, angels? Like, are we just going to like walk around in heaven and there's going to be like a shining light shining on our head, just glistening all the time? Like, like, am I going to get wings? I, I mean, I got questions. I got real questions from what Jesus has to say. Jesus's answer to their question doesn't give me any better clarity of what's going to happen in eternity. It just makes me ask more things like this, like this. Well, what actually is the difference between us and angels? What is the difference between, it seems in scripture, it seems that angels have some autonomy. They have individual names. They each are, 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 are individual people. It, it, they have different jobs. They have different responsibilities. I don't know that we can make a really good biblical argument that they have different personalities, but they at least have different expressions and different responsibilities. They're, they're, they're called messengers of God, right? They, they speak on behalf of God. They, they, they come on behalf of God to proclaim things. The, that, that's all language that's used of us as, as followers of Jesus, that we're called to be messengers, called to be ambassadors, called to be witnesses. Well, <laughs> I got more questions, right? Um, well, but angels, did, did they exist before God created everything? Or, or at some point during creation, did God create angels. They, they have some ability to make choice to worship or to not worship because that's what we believe um, uh, Satan and, and his demons are, is that they were angels who chose to rebel and to not worship. Why is it that God created a redemption plan for us, but he didn't redeem the angels? Like, are angels born? Like little baby angels running around heaven, just making a mess of things? I got questions. They, were, the, were, they, were they there when God spoke everything to existence? Were, were they there watching God speak everything to existence? As long as we're talking about God speaking everything to existence, like before God created everything, what was over here? Like, I, I know that part of what God created, when God spoke into existence, he spoke time and space into existence. So there's actually, you can't ask what happened before God created because there's, 
That's a measurement of time, which was a thing that was created when God spoke everything into existence. So there's no time before God created, but there was something before God. And, and, and if God spoke everything into existence, like where was God before he spoke everything into existence? But you can't really ask where he was because that's a space and he created all things. So like, I got, I got, I got lots of real questions. Living in the world that we live in, in kind of a post-enlightenment world, one of, one of the fallacies of our culture, of the way we think, is that we think that if we can study long enough, we, we actually kind of have this undercurrent um, hope that eventually science and the resources of science will be able to answer every question we have. That everything is knowable. And so we bring this kind of attitude that if we study enough, if we think about it long enough, if we have enough hypotheses, if we test enough stuff, that eventually we can know answers to every question that we have. And we bring that attitude into our faith and we, we come to scripture and, and Jesus says that we're going to be like angels in heaven. And, and then we want to study about angels and we begin to think that if we can study hard enough and long, long enough that we can get the answers to everything. And then the great temptation and the thing that's happening so often in our culture and in our churches today is that when we don't get answers, we've brought in this assumption that we can have all the answers. So when we don't get the answers, we begin to push away from God because it must not be true. It must not be right. If, if it can't be explained to me, if things like the Trinity, God as three, but also as one, if that can't be explained or articulated in a way that my brain makes sense of it, it must not be true. But here's the reality, the truth that we all know. There are things that are more true than can be articulated with words. Many of us in this room have experienced a type of pain and heartache that could never be explained with definitions. That could never be given a sufficient answer to articulate the pain that you felt. There's a beauty in watching a sunset that could never be defined or explained. That there are things in this world that we, as temporal beings, fixed in time and space, will simply never understand. And that should not pull us away from worship and from God. But that should drive us in because every single time there is something in this world or something in your life that you cannot figure out how to understand or articulate or explain, it reminds us that there is a God who is so other from us, not even close, so completely, profoundly different. The scripture says this, that he holds all things together. That in him and through him and for him and by him, all things are held together. That all these things that our brain just can't grasp. God speaks in Isaiah 55. It's a passage you probably know, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And he says this. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth are my thoughts and ways from your thoughts and ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Every single time we come to a reality that we simply cannot reckon, can't process, can't figure out like what's heaven going to look like and what are relationships and what does it mean when it talks about streets of gold and what does it mean about the, the, the martyrs who will, who will sit and worship and what does it mean about all these things when we sit and, we, and we, we feel the weight of all these unanswered questions, it's simply a reminder to our souls that this world does not revolve around us, but that there is a God who is bigger and greater, who holds all things together, who is worthy of our worship. It reminds me of the words of the disciple. He says this, where else could we go? You're the one who has the words of life. And in the midst of all the questions you might have in this room today, the doubts that you might have, the inconsistent, the things you may wrestle with that don't seem to make sense, don't seem to fit all together. Where else are you going to go? It's a reminder to our souls that there is a God who is bigger and holy other than from, from us. And there are things in this world that we will just never be able to understand and should drive us to our knees in worship of his goodness. Job, you know, you know Job, um, he, he had a rough season in life. Like, I don't know what your last 18 months have looked like, but it probably didn't look like Job's. Um, Job, everybody dies in his family, except, except probably the one person he wanted to die, which was his wife, right? His wife says this. This is the last words that we know she says to him. She says, curse God and die as he's sitting there scraping pus and ooze out of sores all over his body. And then he has some friends come, and they're not real helpful either. They're not real great encouragements. They're kind of like, hey, hey, your life fell apart because of you. And then eventually he begins to believe him, and he begins to wrestle, and, 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 and he goes from wrestling with who God is and what God's doing to begins to accuse God of being unjust. And then um, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. But in, in, in Job 38, God speaks, and it's awesome. It's awesome. It says this, for four chapters, God speaks. Just continuous monologue. We're not going to read all four chapters, but, but, but just hear this. You ready? It says this. Then the Lord answered to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this darkness? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you... You will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations there? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since, of course, you know. Or who stretched the line on it? Or, or, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the songs, sons of God shouted for joy. Or, or, or who enclosed the sea? With doors, when bursting forth, it went out from the room. When I made the cloud its garments, and thick darkness swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on, and I set a bolt and door, and I said, this far you shall come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the, the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they 
They stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you know all this. Tell me. Job answers to God and he says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. There are some things in this world that we will simply never have sufficient answers to. But it doesn't discredit our faith. It shouldn't discredit your faith. In fact, in fact, here's the truth. A foundational tenet of our faith is that there are unanswered questions. You cannot have faith if you have all the answers. A faith that is absent of unanswered questions is no for sort of life-giving faith at all. Just the apostle said, Lord, Lord, where are we to go? You're the only one who has the answers. Those questions, those doubts, God's not too big. He's not, I mean, he's not too, they're not too big. He's not afraid of them. But when we come to places in our life where there are things that we don't understand, instead it should drive us closer to him to be reminded that there is a God who is holy and completely other. So there are a lot of things in this life, in our life, in your life, in our world that we will never sufficiently understand how they work or why they happen or why God allowed them to happen or how God's working all these things together or how these things all work together. But there is something that we do know. Look at the end of how Jesus responds to them. He says this in verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, we worship not because we have all the answers, not because we can explain all the intricacies of God's nature or what he's doing, not because everything settles and seems to make sense to us in our limited, finite minds, but we worship because he is the God of the living. He is the God of the living who holds all things together because he is life, because where else could we go that we might find life and hope and peace? So this morning, here's, here's my invitation to you. All, all those questions, the, those unanswered things that maybe have welled up some anger or frustration or even bitterness in you, I, I hope that today that you would come to worship, not in spite of those things, not that for the next 10 minutes you're going to set those things aside and you're going to ignore those things, but I hope that you'll come and worship because of those things. 
because for all of the questions that go unanswered, we know the one who holds all things together. We know the one who in him is life alone. Where else could we go? Where else could we go but to Jesus? Jesus.